Hey, I'm Kent Moran. I'm an actor filmmaker from The Challenger and Listen to Your Heart, and you're watching Points of Experience. Many of you here know me as a voice actor. That's the primary thing that you know me from is my voice acting work. You know, probably either Neo, The World Ends With You, or Bell, right? That's how most of you know me. But my first love was always doing movies, kind of similar to our next guest, Kent Moran, who uh, is a filmmaker, writer, director, actor, producer, singer, songwriter, the whole gamut of, of, of making entertainment Kent has done. Uh, Kent was a co-producer on the film that I made, Madonna and the Breakfast Club, and he brought such value to that project, and we're going to get into that in this episode. We also talk about how you can make a movie, how he made some of his first movies, Listen to Your Heart and The Challenger, you know, getting big-name movie stars to be in your productions, and also kind of just navigating the world as a multi-talented artist, doing a little bit of everything and finding success in doing that. Kent also uh, is a is one of the founders of Acting and Voice Studios, which I hope you all will check out. I have um, taught for them before, and they they offer such a wide array of resources and classes for aspiring actors, specifically for for voice acting. We talk about that. So if you're interested in doing anything in the acting, writing, directing, producing, blah 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 blah, blah any of those career pursuits. You're going to really enjoy this episode. Kent Moran, come up next, the Points of Experience podcast. Ken, what's going on, man? Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me, man. Of course. Thank you so much for doing this. It is, uh, I got to see you in Los Angeles. How long ago was that? Like a month ago? Was that a month ago? Already? It's crazy. Yeah, it's probably a month ago now. Wow. So you were doing the Cinequest Film Festival, am I correct? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, uh, a screenplay I did, uh, Jimmy, the true story of James Dean, got a second place there, so that's why I was there. Oh, yes, I remember you saying it, but you were also in a movie that was at the festival, right? Yeah, yeah, I happened to be, that's why I was like, I better go, because I was also in a, a short film with Natasha Leone there uh, that premiered there, so. And which, what was the name of that short film? That film's called I'm Losing You. I'm Losing You, okay, and so yeah. w- w- uh, is that... Are they doing the festival circuit with that? What is the kind of plan trajectory for the, that short film? Was it, was it a concept for a feature or was it just a standalone short? What was the, the deal with that? Oh, good question. You know, um, I work with the directors quite often. They're a really talented husband and wife team. And for that particular film, it was like a personal story that the, the, the wife sort of came up with about uh, her pregnancy and struggles and stuff like that around the pregnancy. So um I think it was a standalone short, but we are working on other projects together, uh, I guess unrelated to it. But yeah, this short de- definitely stands alone. It's really great on its own. And uh, and hopefully you get to see it because it is going to do the festival circuit. So I would love to see it. And, you know, short films are always a very interesting breed of movies because they can exist in many different formats. They can either just simply do the festival route and then you'll never see them. It's like they're never available for, <laughs> exactly. for public viewing. So it's either you see it at the festival or you don't. It, it Things can kind of be kept under wraps because it is being used as a pitch for uh, feature length. So right. potentially people hold it close to the vest because they don't want people to see something and to have a, a wrong impression, especially if you're courting different producers or networks, whatever it might be. 
Or sometimes people just go straight to like, you know, Vimeo staff pick and it exists on there or it exists on YouTube or their own personal website or Patreon. So um, I always think short films are amazing and it's it's a conversation I always have with kind of aspiring filmmakers when they're interested in doing things. It's like, well, make a short film. That was kind of my path and I know you as a filmmaker and we're going to get into a lot of this. We are kind of cut from the same cloth in the sense of like, you got to make what you can make and showcase yourself to your best talents. Let people know right. why they should know about you because there's so much noise. And I don't always mean noise in a negative way, but there's just so much stuff going on. It's hard for, it's not like it was 30 years ago where oh yeah, it was so easy to find somebody new if they had made something. It's like, you've got to find every which way to make your stuff stand out, be unique, be amazing, shot very well. That's why I'm a huge fan of Mark Duplass, and I really appreciate them saying just make something, and I agree mm-hmm. with that. But it's also kind of like it's got to be just make something, but also to the the best of your ability at the same time. Yeah, I mean, everything's changed in the last 10 years, right? Because, like, technology is so crazy. You could shoot a, a film on an iPhone like they did with Tangerine and still, yep. you know, get into Sundance and all that. So, yeah, so there is so much competition, but there's also so many outlets now purchasing things, so many places to exhibit your movies. But I agree with you completely, actually. Back to the short film thing real quick. Every time I go to a film festival, I find myself enjoying the short films the most, usually, <laughs> because there's so many of them. You get to see so many different filmmakers, so many different, you know, uh, visions and stuff. And, uh, and yeah, so it, it is a great place to start. And there's really no barrier to entry anymore. If you, if you want to make a movie, you should definitely go do it and, and learn as you're doing it. But like you said, it's got to be as good as you can possibly do because to stand out among all the noise, I mean, there's so many thousands of, of movies made a year now. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. I, I experience, I mean, even to the, the, the sense of the duration, you know, I, I, my first short film, well, the first short film I directed was 15 minutes long. And a lot of people are like, well, yeah, that's a short film. But to a programmer who's making a film festival, every single time we were submitting our film, it was like I could put five movies in the same slot as your short film. So that's a that's a long short film for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, regardless of the caliber, you know, we had great acting. It was blah, 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 blah. None of that really mattered regardless of the quality and the content because it was just simply too long to be programmed. So, and that's a lesson we kind of learned the hard way. Thankfully we got to go into a lot of festivals, but I want to talk about you and all of your films (laughs) and how you went up to go. Not only you, you, you made not only one, but two feature films of your own inception. And you, I, you wrote both of them. If I believe correctly, the challenger and, um, the the name of the other one. Yes, listen to your heart. Did you direct right. both of those films? Um, not the first one. The first one I, I always tell people is like my film school. So I, I came into it just as the writer, actor, and producer, whatever. And then I ended up wearing like so many hats by the end. Um, we ended up sort of, my brother and I ended up sort of taking over the directorship like halfway through that movie. Yeah. Just because, you know, of how that went down. And, and, uh, and so we were sort of thrown into it. And just learned a whole bunch of stuff, um, how important directing is, all about directing. We took a, a month hiatus, studied directing <laughs> as much as you can in a month. <laughs> and, um, and, and you know, I think what's interesting to me as a director is like most people think of directing as like on set with the camera, you know, shot lists, all that stuff. And that's just one very small part of it. 
to me, there's so much pre-production, so much post-production that really is directing, especially post-production yeah. where you're like, they say, you, you know, you edit the movie or you write the movie three times, you know, and then the editing being one. And then of course, when you release it and all that. Uh, so I think there's just so much that goes into making a movie that even in film school, I never went to film school, so I don't know everything they teach you there, but I, I do know that, uh, it's just so much you, you need to learn by doing. So I think, yeah. you know, I'll never regret that film. Cause that was like, the best for me. I, I like learned so much, even though there were so many mistakes made and so much that went wrong. Uh, it, it really helped to like teach me everything about filmmaking. So, yeah, I think a lot of people, cause I didn't go to film school either. And it is, it's truly, I mean, granted you are creating mock scenarios when, it, when you're in film school by making your own short films or working on other people's projects. And so there is that sense of trial you know, or, or like learn by doing. But I think until you kind of are put in a, p a position where you're using your own, your own resources, you're asking for a whole bunch of favors, you're using your own money or your crowdfunding until you have all these pressures put on you and kind of the stakes are really high and you're not hiding behind the curtain of like, well, it's just a short film. This is not something I'm really trying to do to, to further my career or to be a uh, calling card. Um, I do think there's a little bit of a separation between those things because I've worked on tons of short films and I see them get made and then I see them, that's it. You know, that's exactly, the, yeah. When I feel like when you're a filmmaker and you're in the the real world, when I use the air quotes for that, there's so much more pressure put on the line because you want people to see this and to recognize, okay, that is a film made by so-and-so and this is the quality of work they are doing on a professional level. If I hire them to do any of the things that they're doing, writing, directing, producing, this is what I'm going to kind of expect. So, uh, Exactly. Films and then – Sorry to cut you off, but and then and then also the the fact that it needs to get distribution and you need to make your investors money back. So you have the artistic side that you probably learn in film school and are able to exercise in film school, but then you have the business side that comes into play when you're doing it professionally. And there's just so many factors and so many people have different um, ways of looking at it, depending on are they a sales rep, are they a producer on your film? You know, there's so many sort of uh, people you have to please. There's so many um, in order to make money on it, in order to be successful with it. There's so much to consider, really, that maybe isn't taught in film school. Mm, yes, so true. And and film school is great. And it's and I, I think a lot of talented people come out of film school. But I also have met tons of wonderful people who just have a love for storytelling, and they mm. learn on the job, or they're consumers of of film and TV, and they learn from watching. So. Yeah. I think a lot of people get hung up on I have to go to film school or whatever it is, but you know we're. we're both of us right here are not products yeah. of film school and, and we've right. been able to find some success. Uh, I'd love to jump back a little bit because yeah, we, uh, for, we're going to talk a lot about you in the intro that you, you're not privy to hear where I'll congratulate you and talk single <laughs> praises here about how great of a human and, and filmmaker you are and an actor, Thank but you. we don't really, I, I, I don't really know much about your story. So what was, I, I mean, I know you started acting fairly young. You went to, uh, theater school, I believe, where you studied music. What what was kind of your childhood leading up to you falling in love with the arts and then deciding to pursue it as a career? Yeah. So growing up, I always knew I wanted to be an actor, even though I never really like said it out loud. Um, I actually, it's one of those things where I sort of assumed my parents knew it. I sort of assumed everyone knew that that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> so I think <laughs> it's weird. It's like, you know, you think you're going to get discovered or that kind of stuff. Right. You know what I mean? Like was going through my head when I knew nothing. Yeah. Um, 
so I, you know, I was doing plays growing up in school and everything. Um, so I was exposed to it early. And then at like 10 years old, um, I, I told my mom I wanted to do it. And, and we, you know, started going into the city, uh, got headshots, was going on auditions, got an agent, all that kind of stuff. So I did pursue it there. But then like life got crazy and sports and everything that I was doing. So um, the next time I did it professionally was about 15 years old, where I where I got cast uh in a, in a regional theater company for West Side Story that I was also doing on top of the plays I was doing. So I was definitely doing a lot of theater growing up. Um, and then my family and just the area I grew up in was really sort of heavily pushing me toward business, right? So mm. I ended up getting a business degree from Lehigh University, um, which was great and I'm very thankful for, and sort of minored in, with a concentration in music and acting. Uh, so I did all of that there. And I got a job uh, right out of college with like this really big mutual fund. And luckily they had hired me for the wrong position because I turned down this position with like a bigger company uh, to go with these people. And the first day I, I, I didn't even show up. I called up to tell them, hey, I'm coming in. Just want to make sure because I didn't get the contract, whatever. They're like, oh, yeah, we hired you for this position. I was like, oh, no, no, that's that's definitely it was a totally different position. I'm like. You know what? This is a sign. I'm sorry. I, and I pulled out. I didn't even show up on day one. Oh and I moved gosh. into the city on my friend's couch in Hoboken. I lived there for a year pursuing uh, acting in New York. Finally, it was so like freeing to finally just go after what I really wanted to do yeah. and not have to uh, to please anyone. Or it was like my turn to decide what I want to do. And, and that was really great. What a happy accident to give you that freedom. I think myself included, I, I had a very... Not similar, but I had a teacher who really made me hate biology. I've talked about this before on the podcast, but it was thanks to like this miserable experience that I had that I said, <laughs> you know what, screw this. I'm just going to try and figure something else out and have fun. And mm -hmm. I think when, especially having parents who maybe like my parents, neither of them finished college. Like my mom went for a little bit to community college, but they were so focused on just kind of getting into the trades and getting a job and, you know, supporting their family. They were just, they really wanted me to take advantage of college and get a job and whatever was going to be happy. So when I told them I didn't want to pursue pre-med anymore, they were definitely like, like what? But for me, I was I felt so free to to finally say like oh my gosh I could pursue a career that's not like me stuck in a cubicle, that mm -hmm. felt so freeing. Exactly. What what about it for you like that first move into Hoboken? <clears throat> what were the first steps that you were taking to like actually now pursue a career as an actor? And were you also were you also pursuing music at the same time too, or was the vision like, all right, I'm in the city and now I'm going to become an actor, or was it I'm going to be doing everything I can to just get on Broadway or be in TV and movies? You know, I, I did do everything, and, and maybe that was the wrong thing, but I, <laughs> I just sort of, I was like, I'm just going to do whatever I want now and like go after everything. So I went after both. So in that one year, I actually, I did a lot of different things. Um, my first step acting wise, what I, I would take the bus in and we would, uh, I would go to acting class in the city. And that was just like, it just felt like the right first step, right? So I, I, I met connections there and then I started uh, from there. Uh, I got a manager and then I, uh, they hooked me up with like freelancing at that time. I was freelancing with like Abrams, which is now A3 and, uh, and a few other agencies. And so I was doing, uh, uh, I got my first speaking role on a soap opera. Um, uh, I think it was as the world turns. Mm. Um, so, so that was like within the first couple months. 
and uh, and then I booked a commercial, and then I booked uh, across the universe. I was a like a they called me a dancer, but like a football player. You know that I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's yes. all about the Beatles. So it was all choreographed, and that was like how I got my SAG card was was that movie. Um, so yeah, so I, I did a lot in the acting front, and then the music front. I would play uh, gigs as like on open mic nights and stuff like that um, with my singer songwriter type stuff. But then also I um, got into a, I did, answered a casting call on backstage, I think it was, and got into a group that was put together by Sony and uh, Columbia. Um, and so that group was like it was like an R&B group. And um, I was one of the only people that stayed because there was a lot of people that left and then they replaced people and all that kind of stuff. Um, a friend of mine now, Donnie Klang, who was in uh, making the band, the show, he yeah. was in the group for a while, too. And oh, now, I didn't know that. That's how you guys were connected. Oh, that's amazing. how we met. That's how we met. Yeah. So then at, at one point we were, you know, with like we, we recorded a whole album, long story short. And uh, the, our manager at the time couldn't make a deal with whoever was trying to buy it. So the whole thing fell apart. And I just felt like it was kind of a waste. Yeah. But then what happened, because I only spent a year in New York. Um, what happened was the acting program I was doing just had like an L.A. thing. And I was like, let me just go try LA for a second. So I went for like this two week program. And when I was there, uh, I met a bunch of cast directors and several of the people, the agents and cast directors told me, you can't go back to New York. You got to stay here. And they, they like wanted to sign me. And I was like, okay. Um, so I literally didn't leave. I had my parents fly out my stuff and I found a place and I didn't leave for 10 years. Oh my so like, gosh. that's how I, that's how I got to LA initially. Um, yeah, it's just a crazy journey. It was been. That's gotta be exciting and terrifying at the same time because I, I, I felt the same way when I moved out here I just was like because I had that thing too I mean I had to come out here to find a, a place to live and I, I had to bring four cats and my fiance and all that stuff too but right. it's it's a very scary and exciting thing to move from one market to another but for you was it another liberating feeling of moving to LA and being like, okay, this is where I should be. This is where I should have been. What was the, what was it about that two weeks that really solidified? This is where I need to be. And New York is not, is not for me. So I've always, as much as I love theater and especially musical theater, I've always like really loved film and not even TV. Like film is my main love. So, um, when I, arrived in LA, it just felt like this is where I should be. And, mm-hmm. and it was even more freeing that for me than my decision to like pursue acting in the first place. When I got to LA, it felt like whether or not I book a job or not, this is like, this is where I have to be. And this felt right. And I met actually so many friends on that two week thing that I felt pretty, even though I didn't know a single person before I went out there, I met probably, you know, 20 friends that I made right there. And, uh, and it just felt really good. And so I got into a, a continuous acting class with one of the casting directors that was there. And so I stayed with that, that class for over a year and, and just met a ton of people that came into that class. And that's how I sort of made my first connections in LA. Um, yeah, but, but I, I did feel, especially the first three years in LA, I was like, kind of like, you know, in LA shock, like, Oh my God, this is where everything is made. Blah, blah, blah. And it felt (laughs) awesome. Yeah. I still have that feeling, which, and I'm not at the three year mark yet, but I still have that kind of surreal driving past the lots and being like, and even when I've been on the lots and seeing all the plaques and it's like, this is where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, friends was shot. Like, and, and right. it's like, what? It's like, this is your, you feel like you're a part of the moving machine. And 
we've talked about this even recently, you know, because the net, the the industry keeps changing, and there's tons mm-hmm. of new cities popping up as hubs for where you can live. You know, we have friends who've just moved to Atlanta. There's people who live out in Georgia, uh, or sorry, uh, and like even. Um, uh, uh, like Boston or Chicago or Florida, there's there's mm-hmm. Texas, there's Toronto, there's film and TV being made more than just kind of the East and West Coast, New York, LA, and yeah. I I think it can be harder to make a decision on where is is right for you, but LA still for me has that magic to it, um, with with specifically movie making, and mm-hmm. and that's what I would fell in love with it. That's how I fell in love with it was this this you know, obsession with movies. What, what were the things that you were doing when you, for what was your strategy now that you're out here for, you know, two, two weeks at this point, you moved here. Did you wind up having to get a job? Did you think like, okay, this is what my game plan is. I'm going to get another agent out here. What was kind of the strategy once you had put your roots in LA to survive and then, you know, you know, further your career? Yeah, great question. Um, and I too think that like LA out of all the markets still feels like it's like the magic place. Like, you know, that you're not in the wrong place by being in LA. Let's put it that way. You know what I mean? It feels <laughs> like this, this is always going to be a place where stuff is happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that first year I, uh, I was doing some catering gigs. I was doing some, you know, I don't, you call it modeling gigs, but like <laughs> where they would hire models to go to parties and stuff like that. And, and, I was doing stuff like that, you know, to, to Wait, make money. And what then, is it? So they, they, they like you were yeah. a plant, you were basically like a plant for parties. Yeah. What? Yeah, it was, it was That's wild. crazy. I know it's wild. So like parties and then, and then red carpet events too. So like, I'd be like holding champagne on a red carpet while other people are walking by, like you get paid for stuff like that. So oh my I would do that kind of stuff. I know. And, uh, and then the funny thing was, so this cast director that I was taking the classes with, he was a big soap cast director. I think it was young and the restless at, at the time. And, um, and then when I first got to LA, I did a James Dean commercial that, and a James Dean print ad. And that covered me for a while. Cause that was good money. Um, and then, uh, I was anyway, so I was deep into the soap world for a second. So I knew like all the casting directors I was going in a lot, but at the same time, uh, he had mentioned to me, it's a good way to make money. Like the background work on soaps is like super easy and they don't even use you that much. Like you'll go and get paid for an eight hour day and you'll be there for three hours sometimes. Oh. So honestly, that's, yeah. So I was doing that quite a bit, but the problem was it kind of bit me because I was up for one of the lead roles in uh, days of our lives at one point, And I went to producers whole meeting with the, you know, I, I auditioned in front of like a conference room of all the producers. And then the next day I come out on an episode as an extra and the, 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 the camera starts on my face and he's like, the cast director calls me up. He's like, are you crazy? You were going to book this role. And now they just saw you as an extra on this episode. So I w- that was the last time I did any extra work on soaps. I never thought about that. I mean, obviously that kind of crossed my mind in a way, just having done extra work myself. But if you wind up doing extra work in a, a featured capacity, that kind of eliminates your ability to ever have kind of a co-star, guest star, etc. Yeah. On, on, on the project. Yeah, especially on a TV show that's recurring. You know, if it's a film, it's probably a lot different unless they're going to do sequels or whatever. But but yeah, especially like a soap where there's just so many. And yeah, in fact, when they asked me to be featured, they're like, you're going to be drunk um, at this frat party and we're going to start on your face. I was like, I don't know if I should do that, but I did it. And yeah. Did you did you say yes, kind of in this idea that, OK, that might be helpful for you or just like you didn't want to rub anybody the wrong way by being like, no. 
it, it just, well, both, but also, um, it just, I knew I had, had auditioned. So that's why I was like, should I not do this? But mm. I also just thought I'm an extra. It doesn't matter. Right. Like it just, that's how I felt, but it did matter. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I never thought about that. I had done when I first moved to New York, the first extra gig I did was for a show called the Royal Royal Pains. I don't know if you ever remember mm-hmm. that show. Yeah. But yeah. I went up going to, there was like a huge Coachella like party thing. And my mindset mm-hmm. was, you know, fresh moving to New York was like, I'm trying to find my way to the camera. Yes. Like I was like, yes. I'm trying to put myself in the position to, and if you wind up watching the episode, like I'm front row and you see my face, I'm like <laughs> in the scene with all these other, uh, with the main, with the main characters. And in my head, I thought like, that's the, that's the way to get a job. But I'm, I'm now kind of realizing that's so counterintuitive to getting booked on the show. Like, you know, well, it depends. I mean, if, if you know that that's going to be your, t- your time, then yeah. I mean, there was a lot of extra work cause I did do a lot as well in, in the beginning of my career that, uh, that I would want to be featured like, you know, on the Sopranos, I did one of my first extra feet, um, film, uh, sorry, TV show that I did. I was trying to get featured. Um, but yeah, I, I, I didn't, it never crossed my mind that I was going to have a speaking role on that show. That's why I didn't think about it. But, for some reason, when I did that soap opera one, I was like, you know what? This feels wrong. Like, I should I should not do this exact one. Yeah, gosh. Well, and you also mentioned D- James Dean, which I know is what you said your your screenplay was about, that that one at the right. festival, right? Were you always obsessed with, with James Dean? Was he kind of like the, the career that you wanted to model your career after? Was, was he always kind of like an idol and inspiration? Or did you wind up finding that love for him as you were truly pursuing acting? Yeah, the second one, because I didn't even know who James Dean was much. I mean, my dad would mention him because he was a fan growing up, but it wasn't until I was in high school that people started saying I look like James Dean. And then and then a uh, guy cast me for the first time as James Dean. And that's when I started researching him. And, th- and then I, then his life was so fascinating and his accomplishments were so crazy that I was like, yeah, I, I was I had this like ticking clock on me because I played him so many times. I was like, I got to accomplish so much by the time I'm 24 because that's how old he was. And it was like, oh, my gosh. Now I look back on that and I'm like, so stressful. I but did the same he, thing. He accomplished a lot. I did the same thing. For me, it was Michael J. Fox. I was like, okay, Michael J. Fox has his own TV show. He was yeah. movies by 24. I was like, yeah, by 24, it'll all be, you know, it'll all be sorted out. Yeah. I'll be a lead and all these things. And you just start. As soon as that kind of time passes you, you're just kind of like, I think if you create that kind of stress and anxiety on yourself, that carries yeah. you for a while. And it took me a little mm-hmm. bit of a while to let go of that and stop squeezing so hard to every opportunity that came my way shortly afterward for a few years because I kept feeling like I missed the boat. That I think that hindered exactly. a lot of the stuff that I was being uh, that I was pursuing. Tell me about the guy project because is that how you guys met? You just met through a casting, and then that's that's how you became friends. And I didn't know that that's how that exactly. started. That started everything. I was, I, I think I was 22 or, or yeah, 22 or 23 at the time. He posted a, a casting. Uh, he was doing this project icons. He was casting Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, you know, Brando. And yeah, that's how we first met. It started as a photo, basically a photo journalist shoot kind of thing. Um, like a documentary with photos. And then he and I sort of, uh, became really into these characters, you know, including Madonna uh, as one of them, uh, James Dean. And so, yeah, that's how we met. And then we, we formed this long lasting friendship. Crazy for anybody, uh, 
Guy Guido was the director of the Madonna and the Breakfast Club documentary that I produced and Kent also co-produced and that's how we met. And your influence on that project was, I think, critical to kind of the success of the film because, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you opened the door basically to the sales agents that we wound up using to get the movie sold, correct? Right. Thank you, man. And yeah, that that's one of my strong suits is, is uh, my distribution connections after doing my films and everything. So I introduced Guy and, and the movie to uh, to Lotus Entertainment at the time. Uh, and, and then from there, the, the sales that I made with Orchard and all that stuff. Yeah, that I mean, we could talk about that in a, in a second. But so in order yeah. to have gotten to that position where you were able to even able to suggest um, this film, uh, the Madonna film to Lotus, you had done the Challenger, right? That was what kind of opened up a lot of doors for you as a filmmaker. Is that where things kind of started? Uh, actually, listen to your heart uh, years before that is when I started making the connections and you know, what happens when you have a film that you're ready to, uh, to to sell is you're pitching it to a lot of people, right? And so you meet a lot of people and, and, you, and I've stayed in touch with them. And and so other than my two films, I've actually gotten a number of films distribution. It's something I do to help uh, filmmakers in the right circumstances and uh, and sort of co-produce or produce something to, to do that. So, uh, yeah, so it, it's been a really, really uh, freeing thing to be able to know that I can make a movie and I have somewhere to to get it, you know, distributed. Yeah. So it's nice. So tell me about Listen to Your Heart then. Where did that kind of start for you? When did the writing process and all of the, the that that inception come from? And when did you actually feel like, okay, I'm going to make this into a movie? And how did you take those first steps to actually like being able to a- afford doing so? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So uh, writing, by the way, I'll just quickly mention has also been a passion of mine just as early as acting. And, and I, I started with poetry and then music and then evolved. But um, I never thought I could write a movie, right? It sounds crazy to write a movie. Um, but what happened is 2008, there was a writer's strike. And so the the actual um, jobs for actors sort of dried up for a while. And I was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write something. So I wrote the first film I ever wrote was actually The Challenger. Mm. Um, a, a very early, early version of The Challenger. And um I'll get back into that later, but essentially that I think I wrote three scripts in between the challenger and listen to your heart. And what happened was I had partnered up with a a friend of mine at the time and we were going to make his horror movie because we thought at the time, you know, horror movies, low, low budget and easy to sell that kind of thing. And he had already written it. So, but then I was dreaming one night and I had this idea for what became listen to your heart. And this became the first time I had done this, actually the challenger I, had, I dreamt about as well. And that's how that came. But, um, it became my writing process where the way I, I write is I, I come up with the idea and then I'll dream about it for like two weeks. And I'll like, I can sort of control my dreams and like tell the story in my head as I'm dreaming. And then I'll wake up and write notes at like two in the morning, three in the morning, whatever. And I'll go back and I don't start writing until I have most of the story already, you know, dreamt about or in my head or lived in some crazy way. And so then I write the script in like two days when, and that's still how I, I work. Um, the first draft gets written really fast. Uh, so what happened was we were getting ready to do this horror movie and we had, you know, the pitch deck, all that kind of stuff. We were about ready to pitch to investors. And I had come up with this idea and I had the script and I was just so passionate about it. I was like, can we make this one first? And the plan was to make this one and then make that one. So we did. He loved the script, and and uh, and I was able to get it some 
some good connections. I got a good casting director on since, and that's something I recommend if, it's, if you're a first time filmmaker and don't have other connections, like you want to bring value to the project. So my first value add was bringing a casting director. He had cast minority report and a bunch of other things. So, um, I felt like that, that was going to give credence to the, the, the script. So we did that. And then I went out and tried to raise the first bit of and that was the hardest part. That's always, in my opinion, the hardest part. You got to sort of raise the first chunk to be able to make an offer to a, a name actor. Yeah. And then from there, it gets better. So basically, we we raised $200,000 to start. And I thought I was going to make the whole movie for that. And so we started out with an ultra low budget. And I made an offer to Sybil Shepard through the casting director. And she came on board. And then once we got her... We got four, four or five hundred thousand, I think, after that, uh, from other investors. Like once you get a, once you get a name, it's like everything else is easier, right? Yeah, Distribution, yeah, yeah. funding. So the hardest part is getting that first seed money, and then, um, yeah. So and that wasn't easy either. That was that was very very hard. Anyway, the point is, once once we did that, we got to I think about four or five hundred thousand, and then that movie just went way over budget because a lot of issues that we had. Um, and I don't want to say anything negative about anybody, but I'll just say that it was a learning experience for everybody. Sure. And, you know, we ended up having to raise more money and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but we got distribution. Oh, so back to how I got distribution. So we then hired a producer's rep. So there's, there's two different types of reps when you're with film, there's producers, reps and sales reps, producers, reps represents the producers and gets you domestic distribution. And the sales rep represents and gets international distribution, which are both very, very different. So domestic works like a pyramid. And it still does, even though it's changing a lot with the whole internet and everything. So, you know, theaters being first, then, you know, again, now it's changed a lot. But essentially, are you going to go to cable next? Are you going to go to internet next? That kind of thing. And internationally, you know, you basically sell it all at once. Like you, your contract with the sales agent essentially gives them the right to make deals on your behalf without checking with you once you've set minimums and maximums. So essentially they, uh, they sort of take it, take your trailer and, and sell it to the world. Uh, and in some countries they could sell theaters in some countries they could sell everything. In some countries they could sell just TV, that kind of thing. So long story short, I made a connection with a producer's rep who got us our distri distributor Gravitas and ended up being Warner brothers as well on that. And then, um, we got uh, vision films for, and I think they found us vision as well for international and then they ended up selling internationally for us. Mm -hmm. It's so much fascinating stuff, even going back to the idea of controlling your dreams to write. I mean, that really kind of set an electricity into my my thought process <laughs> because that's it, it's I have a, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I use my dreams to be kind of the uh, the spark for. A lot of my ideas, I definitely journal right next to my bed. I'll have an idea or I'll wake up Allie and I'll be like, Allie, I had this idea for a movie. And she's like, well, mm -hmm, exactly. and she's like, yeah, 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 sure. Aliens where, you know, a lot of that <laughs> happens for me. And then I'll, I will have a similar thing where scenes will happen. But I've never thought of harnessing that kind of power to use like that as a, a, a formulaic writing tool. Is that something you would read about or was just something you'd known through experience of having gone through the first film that you'd wrote? You know, it, it just, it felt right to me because when I, when I dream, I had my first dream about it and this started with the challenger really, even before listening to your heart, where I dreamt 
a dream about a scene about about you know what touched me and then i felt something emotionally and so when i feel something like that i try to keep it as organic as possible and i try to sort of get all the structure out of the way not not even think about any of that i just want to keep the organic feelings and character plots and and, and arcs um again as organic as possible something that's going to make the audience feel something mm. and so that's why i thought let me tap into this as much as i can and of course you know it's not like i'm writing it word for word uh, a lot of times a lot of times there is a lot of dialogue that comes to me and i actually do write that but um it needs to be edited, structured, all that stuff, the same way any any script does. But I just feel like as much as I can get organically, like coming through my, you know, human emotion vessel or whatever, it, it, the better it'll be. So, so that's yeah. what I try to do. Uh, that's so fascinating. I I've, I've never thought of, of of doing it that way. I also want to touch on because I think a lot of questions that people have. The part where a lot of people get stuck in the pursuit of their films is the crowdfunding or financing part. I have my experience in crowdfunding. That's how the majority of my projects have gotten made. I've used Kickstarter um, or Indiegogo, and I've raised you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars through using crowdfunding. That was the kind of way for me as a filmmaker to pursue getting my projects made early on. And then eventually I was able to meet people who had the ability to write big checks and to, you know, that's how I financed my series. I had met multiple investors, producers, producer investors who wanted to come on project and and have a high stake in equity. Um, And for anybody Mm -hmm. who doesn't know what equity means, that means a percent of ownership in some capacity or at least a written percentage of uh, sales and revenue from the project, you know, however you want right. to discuss that. So that was the way that I had done it. What was your strategy, especially starting out towards saying, I have this idea for the movie. What was your, who were you looking towards or where were you looking towards finding people who were going to invest in, you know, $100,000, $200,000 to most people sounds like a lot, but in the movie making business, it's pennies. Exactly. So what was your strategy for doing that? First of all, congrats on the on all that. That is amazing. I mean, the the um, Kickstarter stuff like that to raise that kind of money is is amazing. So it's tough. Nice, it's a full time nice job. It's tough. <laughs> I know. I've, I've tried. I tried it once. See, I tried Kickstarter once on a, on a little album of mine that I did, um, and I, got, I think I got like ten thousand. But just to get that was like super hard. Yeah. So I mean, I, I really respect the uh, people that can do that. Um, yeah. So I think. I don't even think Kickstarter was around when I started Listen to Your Heart. I'd have to check, but I, it wasn't proven yet, right? So I, I didn't really look at that as an option uh, yet. But um, <clears throat> so for me, it was about just calling up people, meetings. Uh, I read this book. It's called From Real to Deal. Uh, anybody who wants to be a filmmaker and make their own movie, I think, should read that book. Uh, Quentin Tarantino endorses it. It says he read that book and started his film career. Uh, there's so much in there. Pull and it's still piece. relevant. Yeah, it, it's still relevant. Obviously, it's old at this point, but um, there's still so many relevant things in there. It basically tells you from pre-production all the way to film festivals and distribution, how you can make a movie. And so that was sort of like my Bible uh, at that point. And, you know, I think it, it was just I, I tried a lot of things. Let's say this. A lot of things failed to raise that first money. Sure. And the. So I, I'll just tell you the things that succeeded, right? Because <laughs> we could be here forever. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, I, w- I was calling up everybody, you know, they, they said, oh, dentists, lawyers, blah, blah, blah. But the, the way I've sort of narrowed it down, the best way to raise money is to get, everybody is more connected than they think they are to some sort of investment, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's like, 
it's usually, I keep, keep telling people, it's usually not that first degree. It's usually not like me and you, like friends or like a family member. It's usually the second degree is like your sweet spot. So yeah. if it's your, your, your dad's friend or your mom's friend or your friend's friend, because your mom and dad, your family, your, you, your friends, they know you as you. Yeah. They don't know you as the professional, right? But when you get introduced to somebody else as the professional, and that's the only way they know you, now all of a sudden, that's your that's your kingdom. Like you are that. That's who you are. And so now, to me, it was my confidence, probably too much confidence that I should have had, not knowing enough what I was doing, um, and my belief in my movie that got that got those investments. So I think, in terms of who to target. It's usually telling your friends and family everything you're trying to do so that they can spread the word and then spreading the word to their friends, asking them to make uh, introductions or connect or connections. Uh, if there if there are people that are high net worth individuals that have enough money to invest in a movie, like you said, 200,000 is a really small amount for a movie, but it's a really big amount for an investor. And it's hard to make even $200,000 back. So you yeah. want to have a you have to to me, it was like my confidence in the story. It was my confidence in how I'm going to use their money and make their money back. And it was the value adds that I could add to the project. So um, at the time, I really, it, it's kind of a semi-miracle that I got that first 200 because I was such a green filmmaker. Mm -hmm. But what we had done is we had just made a spec BMW commercial to short, sort of show people what we could do. And we made that, like, we made a deal with BMW. You know, we got the cars for free. We did it, filmed it in a parking lot. And so we just sort of filmed like a, not even a proof of concept, but just like, here's something that we can do. So we had something to show. We had the movie, the script, and people were loving the script, thankfully. And uh, and then we got that first money. But like I said, it was not until you got the cast that then the rest of the money is really easy because then any meeting you have, people are going to be interested, if not invest. I mean, I've had movies since then where I took one meeting, one lunch meeting, and because of the value adds I've been able to add to my package over the years, I got a $50,000 check just leaving without even having anything attached to the project whatsoever. Um, so yeah, value adds, um, the, the second degree connection is a great place to start to try and reach people and just putting it out into the world. I'm a big believer of like, if you believe it's going to happen, other people will believe and you have to believe so that strong enough so that other people can believe in it. Otherwise, maybe your belief isn't strong enough. Maybe that's why people aren't investing. And that's what I found in other times when I tried to raise money and didn't get it done, it was because I didn't believe enough mm. that I could do it. Uh, amazing points. So well said. Uh, speaking things into existence, I think, has just been proven scientifically throughout history. The more that you believe in something, the more you are going to pursue it until it comes to fruition. So if you don't have exactly. that belief, it's going to be hard for you to keep fighting through the hard times that you're more than likely guaranteed going to have because this stuff is not easy. Uh, another thing yes, you said, exactly. which it's so funny because I remember I stumbled in. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast yet i hope not uh, i stumbled into a, a, a class at nyu or like a seminar that i wasn't even really invited to and it was about producing and i'll never forget the, the this what the teacher said which is exactly kind of what you said where they did it he goes all right who in here knows so somebody who's famous and everyone looks around and like one person shyly raises their hand and then he goes <laughs> okay now great 
everybody in this room now knows one person who knows someone who's famous. And yep, understanding exactly. the, the, the degrees of separation that it's not always, you know, your friend or your mom or whatever it might be, but they might work for somebody who's got a lot of money and they're looking to spend it or not spend it, but looking to make more of it with a deal that seems profitable, that you have to mm-hmm. convince them is profitable. Because I think a lot of people are like, okay, I just need the money, but you also need what you said is a plan to make that money back and then some. Because without exactly. that, it's going to be hard for anybody to have confidence, especially in a, in a green filmmaker. So kudos to you on uh, on being so brazen and succeeding in that because that's <laughs> – I think I had, you, man. I had some of that same blind confidence. And I think especially with my series, the thing that I was able to get money from was you need to – these people are investing – you said you had a great script and you believed in your script and a lot of people read it and they liked it. But at the end of the day, they're investing in you, the filmmakers. They need to believe that you can do it. And it has to come from your confidence in the way you speak about the project. You speak about every other part of the the machine. So the day you're going to start getting people on board, the day you're going to start filming, the way you're going to start editing it, the way you're going to get it to other people's hands, who's going to give you this money. Like, And I'm sure you did your own version of a a pitch package or like a project Mm -hmm. deck or whatever, you know, you could to give them this kind of documentation of being like, here's the strategy. I can do this. Right. Yeah. And and I realizing it now, one of the things that probably helped me was that I was living in LA at the time. So here's this LA filmmaker, young kid who's, you know, and, and, you know, I don't know. I think it's just like the aura of what you're doing. And like, again, the belief system, have you ever, it's kind of off topic. Did you ever watch Inventing Anna yet that was on Netflix? No, I only, I, I've seen clips obviously of like, you look Paul, you know, I've seen the, right. the the memes of it. Yeah. So she was basically able to sort of con her way into like millions of dollars. Um, and I'm not saying of course to go that far, but the point is she believed it. Right. Yeah. And because she believed it, she was able to attract it to her. And that's like a perfect example of how you can make that happen. Um, without the crime part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to do that. And, I, and obviously as an actor, I've been in many scenarios where I've lied myself to uh, employment and then I've experienced the repercussions of saying, yeah, yeah. I can do X, Y, and Z and then realizing you can't because I, I, I think a lot of things that people, uh, you hear this a lot is, you know, say yes and then you'll figure it out later. Sure. If it seems like it's something you can figure out, like if they're saying, can you right. play, you know, um, Wonderwall on guitar, like four chords, like feasibly with a couple of weeks of practice, you could probably right. learn that. But if they're asking you if you can do, you know, a, a triple backflip, that might be something you shouldn't say you can do. Yes. Uh, and, and that applies in every facet of artistic ventures, not just acting. But so, yeah, you don't want to. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't mean to lie. Absolutely not. I I sort of mean just believing in yourself because I think just like you said, you want to, you, it's a trust thing, right? They're trusting you with their money. And so you have to give them reasons to trust you basically. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, and what you had even done with the proof of concept or the BMW spec thing that even showed them like, great, this now is more than just a script because it takes more than just being a really good writer. You have to be a good filmmaker and you have to understand cameras or at least you have to have someone on your team who understands cameras lighting um assembling the team and that's where i think one of my strongest suits kind of similar to you where it's maybe putting people in touch with uh other people and providing value i i always felt that i provided value with 
people who are doing the trades. So I, I was, mm -hmm. I'm a big talker and I was able to connect people with grips, gaffers, ADs, uh, any job in New York city that someone might need on a project. And that's how I kind of got hooked up with guy was like, I, I hadn't produced on like, you know, top of the line producing credit, like main producing right. at that time, but I had done it with short films, um, in smaller capacity. And I'm like, anybody you need to make this film, I can bring them. Where I right. may not be able to do that, I can provide value in finding the locations. I can do it in finding the right people to, you know, come on and, and prov uh, provide their own value. So while my providing a value wasn't necessarily like I can do this, it was I can find people to do this. And that's that's huge value, right? I mean, connections and stuff in the industry, especially to um, uh, people who don't have that, right, or who it's hard for, that's really valuable. And I think uh, not just people, but good people that can actually do the work, uh, and, and are seasoned pros. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Even more importantly, the, the people who are good and it's not just somebody who can do it, you know, you, you are co-signing on their ability. And the second that you yes. provide someone who can't do the job, then that looks bad on you. Um, I want to jump to the challenger then. So you had the success yeah. with your first movie and you had kind of checked all the boxes of what you of what should be done as a first time filmmaker. You know, you got it made, you got it edited, you, you wind up getting distribution for it. So at what point did you say, I'm going to go back and now decide to pursue the challenger? Because that was that was the first movie <clears> I saw <throat> of yours. And it's a fantastic film. It is a fantastic oh, film. I believe I read that it was um, uh, Michael Clark's last film that he he actually had done at the time. Mm -hmm. Michael Clark uh, yeah. from uh, Green Mile. Uh, what was the process to then now do that film, getting someone like him on board? And what was kind of the things that you learned differently from having done the first film that you tried to rectify doing this one? Oh yeah. I mean, there's a lot there. So, uh, it, it's almost like you, you go through the whole, I think it was a two or three year process with listen to your heart. And it was, it was amazing. I loved it, but it was the hardest thing I had ever done. <laughs> so to, to say to yourself, I'm going to do this again is almost like, am I crazy? You know what <laughs> I mean? It, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. So you have to love it. And, and more than love it, you have to really just, you can't stop. You have to, if, when you, when you're an indie filmmaker, the whole thing rests on you. You don't have a studio behind you that can sort of replace you and, and, and have someone finish. I wore so many hats on the challenger that like the whole thing rested on me, uh, by the end. And so there is a lot of, uh, stress and responsibility that goes into that. But so, so back to the beginning of how I made that movie happen. One of the investors on listen to your heart, I told you I'd written the challenger before listen to your heart that investor, he had already read the challenger and wanted to make that movie. I convinced him to make listen to your heart instead. So that's how we got that first 200. Now I was pitching him the James Dean movie. Mm. Okay. Which I, I had an earlier draft of nowhere near as good as the draft that I have now of the James Dean one. And he was like, well, what about the challenger? He's like, uh, I'll give you 400,000 if you make that one. And I was like, um, okay. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was, so actually it was, it was that, that made me go back to that script and it became a totally different, not totally different, but a very, I, I went back and rewrote that script almost entirely because it was the first thing I wrote. It was not very good. The first draft, um, he just loved the concept and he was like into that kind of stuff. Sure. And so I wasn't going to say no to money. And I was like, how can I make this work into something that I'm also passionate about? Right. So, 
I, I went back and I really delved into what boxing meant to me, why I wanted to do this movie and like, and, and, and what, what's going to make it unique and all that stuff. And I, and I rewrote that script. And so I started with 400 on that one, which was really helpful in getting the thing made. So, um, ironically at the same time I was meeting with Michael Clark Duncan's manager to be my manager as an actor. Mm. And so I had the 400, I had my list of who I wanted to cast as my trainer and I'm going into this meeting who happens to represent Michael. He was like one of his biggest clients. And I spent the meeting talking about myself. Uh, and then I was, or, you know, they were asking me questions about myself, but then I sort of turned and I was like, you know, I'm casting a movie, I'm doing a movie right now. And I would love Michael to play our trainer. And so he was like, okay, cool. So send me the script and whatever. So I sent it to him. Luckily, Michael loved it and we negotiated. Now on that one, I wore way too many hats, but I'm happy I did because I got to sort of learn the ins and outs of every process. So I actually cast that movie, the lead roles in that movie um, by myself. And so I, I cast Michael there. And then once we had Michael, we went and got a Patha. And she was like my number one for that role. And then I was working out in a gym uh, in LA Fitness in, in Hollywood, or was it, no, it was like Toluca Lake area, uh, Universal City, something like that. And anyway, I, I run into Justin Hartley and yeah. Justin Hartley was my number one for the the, cha the challenger's opponent, right? So for James Burchard. So, uh, so I see him there and I'm like, this is creepy. I'm not going to go up to Justin Hartley you know, in the middle of his workout and asking to be in my movie. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, back to like my whole like dreaming thing and having to be organic. I was like, let me come back the same exact time. If he's here again, it's meant to be. And I'm going to ask him. So I literally came back the same time the next day. And I walked right up to him like a crazy stalker. And I was like, Hey man, uh, I got this boxing movie I'm making. Uh, and Michael Clark Duncan's in it. I'm in it. And, and I'd love for you to play the other role. It's like, oh, okay, cool, man. Let's have lunch. And he gives me his number. We we have lunch the next day. He reads the script and he comes on board. So that's how I got him after what? that. And that's another thing about being in LA. And we kind of talked about this when we had lunch yeah. the other day. It's like those type of things are very conducive to happen here because of just the, yeah. the elements and the environment of doing so. Obviously, you can't just be some any person with a script in their hand and going up to right. random actors, you had a lot of fodder behind you to, to preach your authenticity right. and your seriousness yeah. and, and money. You had, you had money, <laughs> right. which talks. And Michael was already attached. You know, if Michael wasn't attached, even with the money, I don't know if he, uh, if he would have come on yet, but yeah, that again, once you have one actor attached, it's so much easier to get other actors, the distribution, the other money, etc. So talk to me too about now, because you also starred in this movie. So there's a huge yeah. training element and component that goes into doing this while yeah. you're also putting the entire movie together. So can you talk me through the effect or the experience of <clears throat> crafting this movie and also training physically and then having to perform as an actor? What was that whole... Uh, you know, dance that you had to do to, to make all of those three things happen at the same time. Yeah. Again. And it's like, first of all, no movie gets done without the help of an enormous amount of people. And I, I think my crew and cast, I was so lucky to have, and it's such a collaboration. So there's so many great people that worked on this. But um, again, if I had like gotten injured or like, you know, whatever during my training or whatever, and I was out, the movie would have stopped. And so it's like a lot of pressure uh, on me this time to do this. So 
Yeah, it was crazy, right? So I, I, I trained eight months before making the movie uh, at, at Freddie Roach's gym, who's Manny Pacquiao's trainer in a wild card in, uh, in LA. And I wrote my experiences at that gym into the movie itself. And then I trained with a Golden Gloves boxer in New York. So that was my trainer here. And he was on set and, and also helped me during the New York portion of it. So to me, I learned so much on, again, my, my film school of Listen to Your Heart that I, I changed so much about how I filmed uh, The Challenger. For, I, I storyboarded everything, shot listed everything. I knew exactly what I was going to shoot before I, I even came on set. Everybody in the crew, all the department heads, they had those books of all that. So they knew what we were doing. We had production meetings all the time. So to me, if I'm going to do something like that, where I'm so heavily involved in directing plus acting plus training during the actual thing, everyone had to know what was going on before we even get on set. Mm. So that was the main the main thing. Um, and the funny thing is that actually freed us up to improvise a whole bunch because I would, my directing strategy was I had such these such great actors that basically we would get the the way I wanted it two to three times, and then once we had it, we would just improvise. And I had this amazing scene with a, a patha in in uh, in our house there where basically this was like a one page scene and instead we just improvise this thing she's like let's try something and she and, and we like look at it. i forget who cut it out but she's like let's make it shorter so john michael and i i don't know if you know john michael he's he he is the other way that i can uh do all this he's my second unit director and basically again he's one of the people i go over everything with so when i'm acting he's directing me because yeah. i always want to have someone directing me so in this scene, she's like, you know, it just feels like it should be shorter. And I totally agreed. And I was like, let me, so on the spot, we cut out like the whole page and it ended up being like three lines or something. And it was like, I turn, she's like, Jaden, she goes, I'm afraid of this. And I, all I say is I know, you know, and that, and the whole thing came out, it was like three lines or something, but it was supposed to be a whole page. And that kind of happened, I think, because we were so prepared that we can do stuff like that, you yeah. know? So now to now to the hardest part of the movie, which is basically the 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 stunts or the boxing itself, where what we did was because we didn't have a huge budget. I thought I needed five million for this, and we had under under a million dollars for this movie, and and uh, and we had over three thousand visual effects by the end of this movie. Just you know, so it was as much as Spider Man one. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's crazy. So uh, and and most of those visual effects were the the big fight scenes at the end with the crowd filling the fifty thousand fans. Um, so basically, we piggybacked on a light heavyweight fight, and I, I you know we got to the Times Union Center, and we wanted we filmed the whole actual event that happened, and then at the end we had about five thousand people stay, and they it was tell it was it was uh, on the radio as well like hey stay after the fight we're filming the challenger, and I we had one take to do everything that was shot for all the fights because it had to be real. And so we basically came out, there's one take of us walking out and all that. And I had, I had about six cameras. Uh, you know, there were the TV cameras up in, up there that were filming like the TV footage. There were the two red cameras at ringside that were filming the fight. And then there was like a few other cameras that were just around to get B-roll. And yeah, everything was one take. So, so I had to, I choreographed the fight as well. So I had to do that with Justin Hartley and we had like everything down to a, a tea before we get in there and then once you're in there honestly it was so much fun it was so exciting it was like it felt so real because we made it as real as possible because yeah. we had one take of everything and it was just like this is this is it you know so the energy around us was amazing because the fans were so into it that's so fascinating because 
having that restriction put on you, I pro- it, it was probably freeing and even more yeah. exciting than if you had to like search for the perfect shot every little moment because it's like yes. we have to have this re- rehearsed, know it so well that we go in there and it's like doing a play. You basically filmed yeah, yourself doing is. a play. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and because, you know, you have to get it right the first time, we all brought our A game. You know what I mean? Yep. And so much of what Michael Clark Duncan says ringside is improvised and he was just such a great improviser. So a lot of he would do it a lot, but especially in the final fight, he was just like going for it because <laughs> we had that one take. It was it, you know, that is so cool. That's so amazing. And that, that's a hard film to do on that type of budget. And it is it is yeah. fantastic. And uh, that's what made me so impressed with kind of your work, especially when we started doing the Madonna stuff. And it, it's it's an it's an amazing film and everybody should go check it out. I think it's it still plays right now. You know, like that was released, what, like six years ago and it's still plays all the time yeah so now it, we just made a showtime deal so it's on showtime for three years now and it's playing like four or five times a week so it's really it's keeps it has a great life it keeps going yeah that's so cool and that's what i think people don't realize about the filmmaking industry is that uh films have that capacity as more and more of these networks are creating their own streaming services too, that you can find ways to kind of revitalize and allow it to be something that continues to pay for itself going down. If you can find the opportunities, voodoo, um, uh, you know, Showtime, Paramount, HBO, all these different places that are Netflix, you know, I think things are changing, but you still have that potential to create deals and, and allow the film to keep generating revenue. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and even like Amazon Prime, I think now you as an independent filmmaker, you could submit directly to them. Yep. If you don't have other outlets like that kind of thing is available too. that's what we did with my short film. Eris It's it's on Amazon Prime. You can control you, yeah. you can control if they get it free through Prime or you can charge a fee to rent it or to buy it. So there are so Amazing. many tools for filmmakers to kind of put the tools into your hand and decide this is what I want to do. This is how I want to distribute it. Um, it's so funny because. I, I, there's a story recently. I don't know if you heard about this. There was like a TikToker who has, I, I hate calling them a TikToker. They have a large following <laughs> on TikTok. They yeah. have like 8 million, but they yeah. are an artist and they are a filmmaker. They're an actor. Absolutely. They have about yeah. 8 million and they made a short film and they were very disappointed with, you know, having 8 million followers and having a very poor turnout in the, the sales of the film. But mm-hmm. I personally mm-hmm. believe it was because of the strategy in terms of distribution. They put it behind like a $15 paywall. And you had to pay to see a short film for 15 bucks where most that's very high. That's a very high demand for someone to make of, you know, think about your fan base too. There, these, a lot yeah. of people are absorbing free content all the time. So your price tag they should have charged a dollar for that. Ex- and you get yep. 8 million sales right there. I know. You know what I mean? Cause who's not willing to spend a dollar? I think people get a little too, they, they, they see the dollar signs flashing in their eyes and they're like, I could make this when you have to right. take a really good look at yourself and where you're at and where your audience is at and how much they're will, willing to spend in a market where free content is delivered by the millisecond. You know, you could exactly. sit on TikTok for the rest of your life and be entertained endlessly. Exactly. And it's hard. It, today's industry is so different than what the Hollywood standard used to be. You know, it used to be like TV was the medium that wasn't as big if you were an actor as film because people could watch you for free. And so I sort of look at like social media like that now too. If you're creating all this content and stuff and people can watch you for free, why do you all of a sudden think that they're going to pay for something? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Especially if it's a short film like that, obviously a feature could be different, but short films are usually free. So, you know, 
anyway. Yeah, no. I, I think that was way too much, yeah. I, I agree, I agree. I think done differently, it could have been a very big success because they had a lot of very famous influencers yes. in the project. So, you know, for anybody yeah. who is interested in pursuing this type of career, I think it's a, it's a really great uh, case study to examine and see why it didn't go well. Um, I'd kind of like to finally talk about, um, I know you and your wife started a studio and I think this is something a lot of my listeners will be very excited to hear about in terms of, uh, cause a lot of people who listen here are interested in voice acting and voiceover. And I knew once you were starting acting in voice studios, there was a lot of opportunities for people who are interested in pursuing VO as well as obviously on camera or theater. Um, right. can you talk to me a little bit about the studio? What type of things are offered? Because I, if, if I was, you know, eight years prior in my career, and even now there's tremendous opportunities, even for someone at the status that I'm at in, in the voiceover career and even on camera right. to, to get connected with people who maybe aren't familiar with my work. Uh, can you talk to me about the inception of the studio and kind of some of the things that are offered or why people should, uh, be interested in it? Absolutely. Yeah. So the studio initially started by my wife, um, I just had this urge to, to sort of teach what she shared and sort of the pitfalls, how to avoid the pitfalls that she um, ran into when she was first starting. And it started in our basement. It was like a really small uh, uh, studio. It was really just private lessons and it was a few group things. And then it really blew up and, and, uh, and I um, came on board and, um, and we both sort of have this passion to sort of help actors sidestep the issues that we went through and what would we want out of a studio? What would we want out of a place? If you're a new actor, if you're a working actor, um, how can we help you not just with your acting, but your career? So all of our classes are taught right now by agents, casting directors, managers, and working actors. So everybody is a professional in the industry currently working. Um, and a lot of them do really big stuff. So you're learning from people who know what they're talking about, who are, are sort of in the know right now, but also you're making relationships with them. They're getting to see your work. And we have a lot of success stories come out of the studio because of that as well. A lot of people getting signed, a lot of people, you know, making great relationships. So, uh, so in the voiceover, you know, it's called acting and voice. And, and, uh, and so we do focus a lot on voiceover as well. We do voiceover reels with a professional, um, voiceover producer who's, who's basically done a ton of like he, the editing and stuff, a ton of stuff for like, I mean, every brand you could think of from HBO to like, uh, McDonald's or whatever. And so he, he cuts these reels. And so if you're starting out or if you have a few, um, spots, um, already we can edit it, but he also is really great at, you know, we actually record them and then a sample basically, cause you need something I think to get started so people can hear what you sound like and everything. So that's something we offer, but also we have cast directors like Barry Shapiro who's cast 8,000 commercials teaching these classes, um, and, and not just like, again, not just the acting, but sort of how, how can you be successful as a voiceover actor and stuff? And people like yourself, you were one of my favorite, favorite speakers at Actor Summit, which was this event that we held <laughs> as acting and voice studios, because you gave so much information and were so um, uh, giving with, with the information. A lot of people aren't like that. So thank you for that. That was really great. And I think a lot of people learned a lot. It's my pleasure. I mean, that's why I do even this podcast, because just like you, I want to give back when I, it was so hard to navigate the industry when I started. There was such a lack. I mean, like, 
po- like YouTube wasn't really a huge thing at the time, at least from like an educational yeah. standpoint when I was starting out. And now podcasts didn't really exist on a commercial level. So finding information was like, what was the one book you could find and, and then like pull right, things exactly. that meant to you? Like reading books right now to fi- to like pursue a career as, a, as an artist, I feel like is so old fashioned. It's so crazy to think about that. Now I just look everything up on YouTube and it's like what you do now, right? I mean, <sighs> yeah, it, it's... It, it, it's so much easier now to to find information. Yeah, yeah, and but even still, with with the foundation you set your studio on is training with people that you have vetted who are working professionals who are going to help you not only as a performer but also understand the business is invaluable because I think a lot of times, especially starting out actors, they find themselves in classes with someone who. Uh, maybe like historically had worked on something and they're not necessarily as active anymore or the industry that they knew is not the industry that is right now. And there's not really um, a potential outside of just whatever you're experiencing in the classroom. These are people who are doing the work today. You know, I, I see all the time you have like Disney executives. If you're interested in voiceover, being able to get your your voice in front of your, your acting in front of these people who are doing the work right now, who are, are casting these projects, like there's obviously the expectation of like, you can't take these classes thinking like, this is going to be, get me into this, into this TV right. series. It's about learning as much as you can about the process of which <clears> they <throat> create or they use to cast people because not all shows are the same. Exactly. Not all casting directors work the same. Not all agencies sign the same. It's like, what can you do to make sure your stuff is up to snuff for whatever it is that you're pursuing? And I, I think it's amazing. And you, you always have great people coming to the studio. Oh, thank you, man. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. We, we were able to get great people and I and hopefully we're providing that kind of value, which I really think we are. And um, one thing I'll mention is that we are not promising jobs or anything like that. But like you said, it's it's a matter of meeting people, getting your work in front of them, forming a relationship. And then who knows what's going to happen, right? I mean, that is all you can ask for as an actor is, is putting your best foot forward and, and meeting the right people. And so we're trying to provide that for people. Um, you know, we, we work with Pixar, uh, the casting directors of Pixar, Disney, and then, you know, Blizzard Entertainment, like all, all different kind of video games and stuff like that. Um, so, so you can really make relationships with these people at our studios and really learn about how to get cast in these things. And maybe Disney, obviously Disney's huge, Pixar's huge. There's, you know, people that are not working on those harder to get things that maybe they're working on the easier to get things, um, and can get you started, that kind of thing. So, I think there's a lot of value. And I think like if I was just starting out as an actor, for me, I would look at our offerings and see, okay, do I want an agent? Right now, we just launched launched this thing called Agent Finder, where we're now actually sending all your materials, your headshot, resume, reel. If you're a voiceover actor, we're we're actually launching voiceover Agent Finder very soon as well. But the Agent Finder, um, basically, it sends to 100 plus New York cast directors. If you want to do New York, uh, sorry, not cast directors, agents and managers, or it sends to 100 plus um, LA cast directors or both. So you can get up to 200 if you do the bi-coastal. And instead of basically some, you know, filling out, we used to send postcards. Katrina and I laugh about it. We used to send postcards with or, or a headshot or whatever. I still have my postcards. So yeah, dude, I exactly. Gosh, yeah. Exactly, right? So, so you send, and that takes so much time. Here, all you have to do is we'll do it for you. You're getting a referral from us. And we have over a 50% open rate on these emails to these agents and they're clicking through a lot already. So it's really been great. 
and I'm hoping we'll see a lot of success with it for, for getting people agents. That's amazing. That's so cool. And again, I would be right on top of that. I mean, even when I was starting in New York, I took tons of classes and I was strategic about it. I had to know exactly. who was casting what. Are they casting shows that I would realistically be of value to? Again, bringing value to something. I remember mm-hmm. I met with... Mm-hmm. Um, I met with Rebecca Dealey, who was uh, at the time Christy Street Casting, who eventually went on to cast my TV series. So again, creating a connection. But I got amazing. Yeah, exactly. I went on to so I, I took a class with her. I knew she was just getting started in Christy Street, so she didn't really know me. But she was moving into bigger positions, and she literally said to me, even though I had representation, she goes, "Have we have have we had you in before?" But I was so strategic on looking at what she was working on, and there was a lot of like shows, you know, that would have like younger people on it, and. And, and I was like, well, no, I'm with this management company. She was like, make sure that they send me all of your stuff because I want to know, even if like your headshot had passed my desk before, now I'm putting a performance to that headshot. Yes, and exactly. that is so invaluable. The personal connection that is so removed from the digital age of entertainment right now, we've lost, you know, a lot, so many auditions or send in self tapes or send in, uh, um, you know, recordings that there is no, right. there's no personality and trust to the performer. So just because you can mm-hmm. edit a performance really great at home doesn't mean that you have the know-with-all to, to to be somebody on set who can do a great job in whatever capacity that you're working in. So I, I agree completely. I, yeah, yeah. I, I think when, when I was when I was coming up in, in L.A. the first uh, year or two, um, I took sort of these workshops with casting directors and stuff. And one of them was with the casting director of Bones. And she told me right there, she's like, I'm going to call you in for something. And so she called me in, but she, she worked right next door with house actually at the time, which was that medical drama. Yep. And so she, she actually didn't call me in herself. She called me in, had a producer meeting with like three producers of house with bypassing like a whole bunch of steps and auditions. I, I, it ended up being way too of an old, old of a role for me. It was like a 40 year old role. And I think I was like twenties at the time. But the point is that's sort of what these relationships can, can lead to. And I think, when you're taking a class, you're not only showing uh, showing your performance to them, right? But you're showing up every day. Are you on, you know, and, and how you conduct yourself is so important. Are you on time? Are you friendly? Are you easy to work with? People sort of bypass those steps. They think it's all about talent. It is not. It's about like, do I want to work with this person, right? So here's a great opportunity. Like you were saying, that personal touch. Show them that you're easy to work with, that you're someone that's going to be very, you know, great to work with on set and you're a professional. And I think that's, that's what this opportunity provides people, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Something we ask every, every guest, uh, Kent, as the nature of the Points of Experience podcast is, this can be related to the industry, it could be related to yourself, being a parent, it can be being a friend, uh, something you heard from, uh, read in a book. What is an experience you had that had an impact or changed your life that you think that our audience would get some value out of doesn't have to be related to the industry. It could be something just as a human being, but was there an experience you had that really kind of like stood out to you? And it's something that you look back on a lot and you wind up thinking like, this is a really great piece of advice or simply the experience of it is a good piece of advice. Is there something that you can share with our listeners? Yeah. Well, I have a piece of advice that stuck with me. I don't know if it's so much an experience, but, um, consistency, like one of my friends who really made it like, and, and, and I was, friends with him before he made it and stuff. He, he was, I said, well, well, how did you get there? You know, what's the deal? And he's like, I, I stayed. He's like so many people left the industry 10 years, 12 years, whatever they left 
but like I stayed and I put in the work and it's consistency. The, the people that have now done you job here, job there, whatever. And you build, you build a portfolio, you build a track record, you build these relationships that we're talking about. And so he was like, it's really just staying in it and being committed to it. And you'd be surprised how, how far that alone can go. If you just keep showing up, doing the work and, and, and staying in the game really. So that is why I'm still here because that, <laughs> that piece of advice uh, really went a long way for me. And I think he's, I think he's absolutely right. So I couldn't agree more. And it was advice that I got from one of my acting teachers is said a different way. You said, you just got to outlast everybody else, which is kind of <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. the same sentiment, totally. but it's, it's so true. And I've seen people from my, my college days, early professional days that they just don't want to do it anymore, or they can't do it, or life has changed their, their interests right. has changed. And you, the the pool winds up getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And if you're really good at what you do as an artist and you're constantly nurturing that kind of uh, muscle and, and, and that curiosity, I think it just creates more opportunities for you to stand out. And you've created long-lasting relationships with, with certain offices. They, they will understand that and appreciate that. I mean, this is a business like any other. And if, if you have constantly been showing up somewhere to your agency, to a casting office, providing good work for them to show to clients, um, then they're going to want to keep bringing you in. And I, and I think that that advice kind of fits into that whole narrative of, of why people who stick it out, find success. Um, I always think about Brian, Brian Cranston, you know, like find success later in his life. And he'd been doing amazing things for so long and no one knew a thing about him. Um, exactly. Yeah. And if you look at like, you know, who's, who's going to book more, right? The person who just comes in and meets the person does a great performance or the person who's been coming in for 10 years and you know, by name, you know, you've had dinner together with the person, whatever, and you just trust them that level of trust. You can't, you can't buy that. So that's, that's sort of part of hanging in there and, and, and keeping those relationships going. So true. Kent, this has been so valuable. I hope um, our audience was taking notes and uh, you you are more than just the triple threat. I mean, you do directing, producing, acting, writing, singing, the whole gamut of things. And I think that is kind of the new renaissance of artists today. It's not just someone who does one thing because it's oftentimes not to say that it's not enough, but I think it limits you as a creative. And the more you can expose yourself to different things in this industry, I think the more rewarding of a career you can have as seen by uh, you and, and all the amazing things you've had got to be a part of and, and create your, of yourself. Oh, thank you so much, man. It's been such a pleasure to be here. I, I think, you know, you, especially in the voiceover world has just been killing it and everyone should really be listening to what this guy's saying. <laughs> um, and you're, you're, you know, one of the nicest people I've met in the industry because this industry can be filled with a lot of, you know, fake people sometimes and whatever. And I think, uh, coming back to those connections, finding genuine people like yourself and people you want to work with. That, that's why you're finding so much success in addition to your talent, of course. So thank you for being you. Oh, that's so kind of you. But it goes right back at you. It's a family. I, I truly believe a rising tide raises all ships. This is a family. And the more you can create yep. a community and kind of weed out those bad eggs, um, the more you wind up working with, with people that are in that circle. And, and I've gotten jobs. You know, so many of the guests we've had on here are people that have employed me or I've employed. So it's you want to work with these people who yep. you like. Um Totally. Kent, totally. where can people find you? Uh, are there anything, is there anything that we should be looking towards? I know you have a, a pretty recent music video. Um, what's some stuff that people should uh, be searching at the end of this podcast? 
Sure. So you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. It's just Ken Moran on, on all those. And uh, yeah, uh, in terms of stuff, I'm going to release a music video I shot for my wife soon. So she's a, a singer as well. And she's got a really cool music video about her battle with Crohn's disease. So it's a really uh, strong uh, piece. And I have a few films in, you know, like the James Dean one, we're talking about a few films in development that I'm hoping will get off the ground soon. So hopefully I'll get to show you something soon. Amazing. I can't wait to, to see that when that comes to fruition and obviously your short films and the music video when that comes out. Uh, everybody, Kent Moran, thank you so much for coming on and spreading so much of your, your wisdom. Honestly, for anybody interested in filmmaking, I really feel like this is kind of you're not hearing a lot of these conversations. So, Kent, thank you for, for sharing all of yours. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, man. Amazing. I think one of the hardest things in the world to do is make a movie. It is so hard to make a movie. I don't think people realize how difficult it actually is to get all the pieces together, know all the people in order to to get something from paper to screen. It is so difficult, so daunting, and... Kent just broke all of that down for us in such an eloquent way, in a very tangible way. A lot of people talk about like, oh, you got to raise money. And then you're always asking that question of like, how do you raise money? Like, how do I get people? How do I write the script? How do I do this? And um, such a nice human being. I, I got to, again, meet Kent working on uh, the documentary that I made, Madonna and the Breakfast Club. And he was just so kind in any questions that I had, even during the pursuits of my own artistic ventures. So I hope anybody out there interested in pursuing a career as a filmmaker really listened to a lot of what Ken said because it's so applicable to making something today. And if you're an actor, performer, curious about you know taking classes with people working in the industry, please check out Acting and Voice Studios because I've, I've, I've taught basically a little seminar for them before and i couldn't speak highly enough about them so thank you guys for watching be sure to review us on apple podcasts uh follow us on spotify hit the subscribe button on youtube and all that great stuff check out kent at his website kentmoran.com and all the music and everything else he has coming up so uh thank you all once again for being fans we love doing this every week and we appreciate you being here until the next time bye